Chapter Nine, Part Four of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Nine, The Boat Journey, Part Four. The bay was still filled with ice on the morning of Saturday, May thirteenth. But the tide took it all away in the afternoon. Then a strange thing happened. The rudder, with all the broad Atlantic to sail and the coasts of two continents to search for a resting place, came bobbing back into our cove. With anxious eyes we watched it as it advanced, receded again, and then advanced once more under the capricious influence of wind and wave. Nearer and nearer it came as we waited on the shore, oars in hand, and at last we were able to seize it. Surely a remarkable salvage. The day was bright and clear, our clothes were drying, and our strength was returning. Running water made a musical sound down the tussock slope and among the boulders. We carried our blankets up the hill and tried to dry them in the breeze three hundred foot above sea level. In the afternoon, we began to prepare the James Card for the journey to the head of King Hacken Bay. A noon observation on this day gave our latitude as fifty four degrees. Ten minutes forty seven seconds south, but according to the German chart, the position should have been fifty four degrees twelve minutes south. Probably Worsley's observation was the more accurate. We were able to keep the fire alight until we went to sleep that night, for while climbing the rocks above the cove, I had seen at the foot of a cliff a broken spar, which had been thrown up by the waves. We could reach this spar by climbing down the cliff. And, with a reserve supply of fuel thus in sight, we could afford to burn the fragments of the James Card's topsides more freely. During the morning of this day, May 13, Worsley and I tramped across the hills in a northeasterly direction with the object of getting a view of the sound and possibly gathering some information that would be useful to us in the next stage of our journey. It was exhausting work, but after covering about two and a half miles in two hours, We were able to look east up the bay. We could not see very much of the country that we would have to cross in order to reach the whaling station on the other side of the island. We had passed several brooks and frozen tarns, and at a point where we had to take to the beach on the shore of the sound, we found some wreckage an eighteen foot pine spar, probably part of a ship's topmast, several pieces of timber, and a little model of a ship's hull, evidently a child's toy. We wondered what tragedy that pitiful little plaything indicated. We encountered also some gentoo penguins and a young sea elephant, which Worsley killed. When we got back to the cave at three p.m., tired, hungry, but rather pleased with ourselves, we found a splendid meal of stewed albatross chicken waiting for us. We had carried a quantity of blubber and the sea elephant's liver in our blouses, and we produced our treasures as a surprise for the men. Rough climbing on the way back to camp had nearly persuaded us to throw the stuff away, but we held on, regardless of the condition of our already sorely tried clothing, and had our reward at the camp. The long bay had been a magnificent sight, even to eyes that had dwelt on grandeur long enough and were hungry for the simple, familiar things of everyday life. Its green blue waters were being beaten to a fury by the northwesterly gale. The mountains, stern peaks that dared the stars, peered through the mists, and between them huge glaciers poured down from that great ice slopes and fields that lay beyond. 
We counted twelve glaciers and heard every few minutes the reverberating roar caused by the masses of ice calving from the parent streams. On May 14 we made our preparations for an early start on the following day if the weather held fair. We expected to be able to pick up the remains of the sea elephant on our way up the sound. All hands were recovering from the chafing caused by our wet clothes during the boat journey. The insides of our legs had suffered severely, and for some time after landing in the cove we found movement extremely uncomfortable. We paid our last visit to the nests of the albatrosses, which were situated on a little undulating plateau above the cave amid tussocks, snow patches, and little frozen tarns. Each nest consisted of a mound over a foot high of tussock grass, roots, and a little earth. The albatross lays one egg, and very rarely two. The chicks, which are hatched in January, are fed on the nest by the parent birds for almost seven months, before they take to the sea and fend for themselves. Up to four months of age the chicks are beautiful white masses of downy fluff, but when we arrived on the scene their plumage was almost complete. Very often one of the parent birds was on guard near the nest. We did not enjoy attacking these birds, but our hunger knew no law. They tasted so very good, and assisted our recuperation to such an extent, that each time we killed one of them we felt a little less remorseful. May 15 was a great day. We made our hoosh at 7.30 a.m. Then we loaded up the boat, and gave her a flying launch down the steep beach into the surf. Heavy rain had fallen in the night, and a gusty northwesterly wind was now blowing, with misty showers. The James Card headed to the sea as if anxious to face the battle of the waves once more. We passed through the narrow mouth of the cove with the ugly rocks and waving kelp close on either side, turned to the east, and sailed merrily up the bay as the sun broke through the mists and made the tossing waters sparkle around us. We were a curious-looking party on that bright morning, but we were feeling happy. We even broke into song, and, but for our Robinson Crusoe appearance, a casual observer might have taken us for a picnic party sailing in a Norwegian fjord, or one of the beautiful sounds of the west coast of New Zealand. The wind blew fresh and strong, and a small sea broke on the coast as we advanced. The surf was sufficient to have endangered the boat if we had attempted to land where the carcass of the sea elephant was lying, so we decided to go on to the head of the bay without risking anything, particularly as we were likely to find sea elephants on the upper beaches. The big creatures have a habit of seeking peaceful quarters protected from the waves. We had hopes, too, of finding penguins. Our expectation, as far as the sea elephants were concerned, was not at fault. We heard the roar of the bulls as we neared the head of the bay, and soon afterwards saw the great unwieldy forms of the beasts lying on a shelving beach towards the bay head. We rounded a high, glacier-worn bluff on the north side, and at 12.30 p.m. we ran the boat ashore on a low beach of sand and pebbles, with tussock growing above high water mark. There were hundreds of sea elephants lying about, and our anxieties with regard to food disappeared. Meat and blubber enough to feed our party for years was in sight. Our landing place was about a mile and a half west of the northeast corner of the bay. Just east of us was a glacier snout ending on the beach, but giving a passage towards the head of the bay, except at high water or when a very heavy surf was running. A cold, drizzling rain had begun to fall, and we provided ourselves with shelter as quickly as possible. We hauled the James card up above the high-water mark, and turned her over just to the lee or east side of the bluff. 
the spot was separated from the mountainside by a low moranic bank rising twenty or thirty feet above sea level soon we had converted the boat into a very comfortable cabin a la peggotty turfeting it round with tussocks which we dug up with knives one side of the james card rested on stones so as to afford a low entrance and when we had finished she looked as though she had grown there mccarthy entered into this work with great spirit a sea elephant provided us with fuel and meat and that evening found a well-fed and fairly contented party at rest in peggotty camp our camp as i have said lay on the north side of king hacken bay near the head our path towards the whaling stations led round the seaward end of the snouted glacier on the east side of the camp and up a snow-slope that appeared to lead to a pass in the great allardyce range which runs northwest and southeast and forms the main backbone of south georgia the range dipped opposite the bay into a well-defined pass from east to west an ice-sheet covered most of the interior filling the valleys and disguising the configurations of the land which indeed showed only in big rocky ridges peaks and nunataks when we looked up the pass from peggotty camp the country to the left appeared to offer too easy pass through to the opposite coast but we knew that the island was uninhabited at that point possession bay we had to turn our attention farther east and it was impossible from the camp to learn much of the conditions that would confront us on the overland journey i planned to climb to the pass and then be guided by the configuration of the country in the selection of a route eastward to stromness bay where the whaling stations were established in the minor bays, Leith, Husvik, and Stromness. A range of mountains with precipitous slopes, forbidding peaks, and large glaciers lay immediately to the south of King Hakon Bay, and seemed to form a continuation of the main range. Between this secondary range and the pass above our camp, a great snow upland sloped to the inland ice sheet, and reached a rocky ridge that stretched athwart our path, and seemed to bar the way this ridge was a right-angled offshoot from the main ridge its chief features were four rocky peaks with spaces between that looked from a distance as though they might prove to be passes the weather was bad on tuesday may sixteen and we stayed under the boat nearly all day the quarters were cramped but gave full protection from the weather and we regarded our little cabin with a great deal of satisfaction abundant meals of sea elephant steak and liver increased our contentment McNeish reported during the day that he had seen rats feeding on the scraps, but this interesting statement was not verified. One would not expect to find rats at such a spot, but there was a bare possibility that they had landed from a wreck and managed to survive the very rigorous conditions. A fresh west-southwesterly breeze was blowing on the following morning, Wednesday, May 17, with misty squalls, sleet, and rain. I took Worsley with me on a pioneer journey to the west with the object of examining the country to be traversed at the beginning of the overland journey. We went round the seaward end of the snouted glacier, and, after tramping about a mile over stony ground and snow-coated debris, we crossed some big ridges of scree and moraines. We found that there was a good going for a sledge as far as the northeast corner of the bay, but did not get much information regarding the conditions farther on owing to the view becoming obscured by a snow-squall. We waited a quarter of an hour for the weather to clear, but were forced to turn back without having seen more of the country. I had satisfied myself, however, that we could reach a good snow-slope leading, apparently, to the inland ice. 
Worsley reckoned from the chart that the distance from our camp to Husvik, on an east magnetic course, was seventeen geographical miles, but we could not expect to follow a direct line. The carpenter started making a sledge for use on the overland journey. The materials at his disposal were limited in quantity and scarcely suitable in quality. We overhauled our gear on Thursday, May 18, and hauled our sledge to the lower ledge of the snouted glacier. The vehicle proved heavy and cumbrous. We had to lift it empty over bare patches of rock along the shore, and I realized that it would be too heavy for three men to manage amid the snow plains, glaciers, and peaks of the interior. Worsley and Crean were coming with me, and after consultation we decided to leave the sleeping bags behind us and make the journey in a very light marching order. We would take three days' provisions for each man in the form of sledging ration and biscuit. The food was to be packed in three sacks, so that each member of the party could carry his own supply. Then we were to take the primus lamp filled with oil, the small cooker, the carpenter's adze for use as an ice axe, and the alpine rope, which made a total length of fifty feet when knotted. We might have to lower ourselves down steep slopes or cross crevassed glaciers. The filled lamp would provide six hot meals, which would consist of sledging ration boiled up with biscuit. There were two boxes of matches left, one full and the other partially used. We left the full box with the men at the camp and took the second box, which contained forty-eight matches. I was unfortunate as regarded footgear, since I had given away my heavy Burberry boots on the floe, and had now a comparatively light pair in poor condition. The carpenter assisted me by putting several screws in the sole of each boot, with the object of providing a grip on the ice. The screws came out of the James card. We turned in early that night, but sleep did not come to me. My mind was busy with the task of the following day. The weather was clear, and the outlook for an early start in the morning was good. We were going to leave a weak party behind us in the camp. Vincent was still in the same condition, and he could not march. McNeish was pretty well broken up. The two men were not capable of managing for themselves, and McCarthy must stay to look after them. He might have a difficult task if we failed to reach the whaling station. The distance to Husvik, according to the chart, was no more than seventeen geographical miles in a direct line, but we had very scanty knowledge of the conditions of the interior. No man had ever penetrated a mile from the coast of South Georgia at any point, and the whalers I knew regarded the country as inaccessible. During that day, while we were walking to the snouted glacier, we had seen three wild duck flying towards the head of the bay from the eastward. I hoped that the presence of these birds indicated tussock land and not snowfields and glaciers in the interior, but the hope was not a very bright one. We turned out at 2 a.m. on the Friday morning and had our hoosh ready an hour later. The full moon was shining in a practically cloudless sky, its rays reflected gloriously from the pinnacles and creviced ice of the adjacent glaciers. The huge peaks of the mountains stood in bold relief against the sky, and threw dark shadows on the waters of the sound. There was no need for delay, and we made a start as soon as we had eaten our meal. McNeish walked about two hundred yards with us. He could do no more. Then we said good-bye, and he turned back to the camp. The first task was to get round the edge of the snouted glacier, which had points like fingers projecting towards the sea. The waves were reaching the points of these fingers, and we had to rush from one recess to another when the waters receded. 
We soon reached the east side of the glacier and noticed its great activity at this point. Changes had occurred within the preceding twenty-four hours. Some huge pieces had broken off, and the masses of mud and stone that were being driven before the advancing ice showed movement. The glacier was like a gigantic plough driving irresistibly towards the sea. Lying on the beach beyond the glacier was wreckage that told of many ill-fated ships. We noticed stanchions of teakwood, liberally carved, that must have come from ships of the older type, iron-bound timbers with the iron almost rusted through, battered barrels, and all the usual debris of the ocean. We had difficulties and anxieties of our own, but as we passed that graveyard of the sea we thought of the many tragedies written in the wave-worn fragments of lost vessels. We did not pause, and soon we were ascending along a snow-slope heading due east on the last lap of our long trail. The snow surface was disappointing. Two days before we had been able to move rapidly on hard-packed snow. Now we sank over our ankles at each step, and progress was slow. After two hours' steady climbing, we were twenty-five hundred feet above sea level. The weather continued fine and calm, and, as the ridges drew nearer and the western coast of the island spread out below, the bright moonlight showed us that the interior was broken tremendously. High peaks, impassable cliffs, steep snow-slopes, and sharply descending glaciers were prominent features in all directions, with stretches of snow-plain overlaying the ice-sheet of the interior. The slope we were ascending mounted to a ridge, and our course lay direct to the top. The moon, which proved a good friend during this journey, threw a long shadow at one point, and told us that the surface was broken in our path. Warned in time, we avoided a huge hole capable of swallowing an army. The bay was now about three miles away, and the continued roaring of a big glacier at the head of the bay came to our ears. This glacier, which we had noticed during the day at Peggotty Camp, seemed to be calving almost continuously. I had hoped to get a view of the country ahead of us from the top of the slope, but as the surface became more level beneath our feet, a thick fog drifted down. The moon became obscured and produced a diffused light that was more trying than darkness, since it illuminated the fog without guiding our steps. We roped ourselves together as a precaution against holes, crevasses, and precipices, and I broke trail through the soft snow. With almost the full length of the rope between myself and the last man, we were able to steer an approximate straight course, since, if I veered to the right or the left when marching into the blank wall of the fog, the last man on the rope could shout a direction. So, like a ship with its port, starboard, and steady, we tramped through the fog for the next two hours. Then, as daylight came, the fog thinned and lifted, and from an elevation of about three thousand feet we looked down on what seemed to be a huge frozen lake, with its farther shores still obscured by the fog. We halted there to eat a bit of biscuit, while we discussed whether we would go down and cross the flat surface of the lake, or keep on the ridge we had already reached. I decided to go down, since the lake lay on our course. After an hour of comparatively easy travel through the snow we noticed the thin beginnings of crevasses. Soon they were increasing in size and showing fractures, indicating that we were traveling on a glacier. As the daylight brightened, the fog dissipated, the lake could be seen more clearly, but still we could not discover its east shore. A little later the fog lifted completely, and then we saw that our lake stretched to the horizon, and realized suddenly that we were looking down upon the open sea on the east coast of the island. 
The slight pulsation at the shore showed that the sea was not even frozen. It was the bad light that had deceived us. Evidently we were at the top of Possession Bay, and the island at that point could not be more than five miles across from the head of King Hakon Bay. Our rough chart was inaccurate. There was nothing for it but to start up the glacier again. That was about seven o'clock in the morning, and by nine o'clock we had more than recovered our lost ground. We regained the ridge and then struck southeast, for the chart showed that two more bays indented the coast before Stromness. It was comforting to realize that we would have the eastern water in sight during our journey, although we could see there was no way around the shoreline owing to steep cliffs and glaciers. Men lived in houses lit by electric light on the east coast. News of the outside world waited us there, and above all, the east coast meant for us the means of rescuing the twenty-two men we had left on Elephant Island. End of chapter 9, part 4